And the second generation Israelites are close to entering the promised land. And they're going to be without Moses, their leader, who has been with him for 40 years. And Deuteronomy gives Moses' farewell addresses, his farewell sermons, if you will, to them. And his aim is to motivate them to go forward and to conquer the land and to help them to be faithful to God amidst all the challenges they will face. He warns them of challenges and he encourages them to a life of holiness. And he tells them of the consequences of failing and living uh, to live for God. And all the time, Moses was very aware of the temptations that the people would face in compromising their faith by the seduction of the Canaanite culture. So it's a very relevant passage to our contemporary times. So he preached these, I imagine, fiery and urgent sermons. And chapter 8 is one of those sermons he preached to them. Let me read it to you. All the commandment that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that, you, that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, your gold and uh, silver multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Amen. Let's look to God for assistance as we look to him in prayer. Father, 
We ask, O oh Lord, that you would have mercy upon us in this hour, that you would enlighten the eyes of our minds and our hearts to understand and behold wondrous things out of your law. Oh, help us to recognize and to realize that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. We pray this in your son's most precious name. Amen. You know, most of us would probably not consider ourselves super wealthy. Now, sure, we may live in one of the wealthier places in the world, but when we compare ourselves to the CEOs of big companies or to celebrities and billionaires, we conclude that most of us are not super rich. We're not poor, but we're right in the middle. You know, we live in average lives, we earn an average income, and live within modest means in our average-sized homes. However, the words of the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs still hold true today. He says that we live in such a way that although we may not be full as now as we have been in the past, it may still be said of us that we are full in comparison to our brothers in other parts of the world. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, most of us are wealthy to some degree. We live in well-conditioned homes. We turn the air conditioner on, right, when it gets blazing hot outside. We all have more than enough clothes and shoes. Our children have excess of toys. You know, parents are often complaining about how toys are lying around the house, and we try to purge old toys in order to make room for new ones. We have no issue paying for a $7 frappuccino or, you know, a boba drink. We may not like to admit it, but we are wealthy. And in the text that we read in Deuteronomy 8, Moses warns of the dangers of wealth and prosperity. Now, while reading this chapter, we are reminded by the Apostle Paul's famous statement in Philippians when he said, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, I think for many of us, the challenge is not to be content when we have nothing, because let's face it, we had never had nothing. The challenge is to be content when we have more than we need, but less than we want. The secret of contentment that Paul was learned not only enabled him to receive the small gifts from a father's hand with gratitude, but it also empowered him to receive great wealth from our father's hand without having our hearts stolen away from the giver by his gifts. And Moses is preaching the same message. You can see how clearly Moses wants Israel to remember God in the hard times of the past. He refers to the great and terrible wilderness, and he wants them to learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But Moses also exhorts them to remember God in the good times in the future. He spells out in more detail almost an Eden-like description of the land and exhorts them in verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. And so just like Paul, who learned to get along in humble means and how to live in prosperity, Moses asked, can you trust God to meet your needs when you have nothing when you're in the desert. And now the question will be, can you still trust God when you have everything you need? That is the test. Well, I want us to work our way through this passage 
asking what the dangers are of prosperity, this test that Israel will face in living abundantly, the same test that God is placing upon us. Now, this first test is more of a general observation. And the first danger of prosperity is the subtlety of it. You know, most people find it easier to handle adversity than prosperity, right? Not that there aren't any temptations in adversity and in poverty, because there certainly are, but not as much as being full and prosperous. You know, when there is a crisis of need, people tend to come to God. They demand a response from God. They beg for His help, and they may even say, Lord, if you deliver me this time, then, then I will follow you, right? And we've experienced in our own crisis of need that it usually drives us closer to God. The fact is God is more precious to us in the valley than He is in victory. But when we are in a full condition, when things are going well, our temptation is to forget God and become self-sufficient. We're prone in our prosperous condition to relax in our spiritual disciplines, to take our blessings for granted, and to forget to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, I quoted him before, but he had a great illustration of this when comparing someone in a poor condition and someone in a full condition. He said, suppose that you had a bitter-tasting poisonous plant in your house. It's true that it may do harm, but it's not as likely to do as sweeten rat poison. And that's because even though it has poison in it, yet it has a sweet flavor to it too. Burroughs acknowledges that, of course, there is poison in a poor condition and great temptations when you are poor, but he said that those temptations have this bitterness in them. But by contrast, he notes how the temptations of a full condition have a sweetness in them, and therefore there's a great danger in them, making it more difficult to avoid those temptations. It's the sweetness of being in a full condition that makes the temptation much more subtle. You see, you know, you know, when we're full, we don't detect the temptation as easily because of the sweetness of it. Because the sweetness of it, it lulls us. It soothes our desires. It makes us relax. And we are tempted to say, well, you know, can a man enjoy the comforts and God's gifts? Can I enjoy the fruit of my labors? After all, these are the things that God given to me. So how can I, why can I indulge in them? And by and by, this kind of reasoning gives way to forgetfulness. Friends, in our prosperous condition, we are but a step to forsaking our God and pursuing the world. But here's a second danger of prosperity, is that we can be convinced that man lives on bread alone. Now, before Moses gets to this really well-known verse, and a, a verse that Jesus quotes in his own testing, he reminds Israel of the necessity to be careful in keeping the commandments of Yahweh. Then he says that they are to remember something from the past. Remembrance of history is invaluable for the Hebrews as they are poised to enter the land of Canaan. And as Moses reflects on the past, as he looks back on the wilderness experience, he discerns a purpose in having a generation wander about in suffering in the wilderness. God turned it into a learning experience that must never be forgotten. The purpose is set forth in verses 2 and 3. It says there that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. And then the last purpose is to know 
It says that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God used a sharp learning tool to teach Israel a significant lesson, and it came to the most basic and universal form of human need, hunger. The people's hunger in the wilderness was not just an accidental byproduct of their circumstances. Notice all of the three opening verbs in verse 3. It has God as the divine initiator. He humbled you. He let you to be hungry. And he fed you with manna. Israel's hunger was designed by God to teach them a fundamental principle of their existence as the covenant people of God. God did provide their basic needs of physical hunger. But the lesson that the Lord was teaching them was that God and his words are more basic to their existence than food. You know, when we usually think of this verse, we usually see it as a contrast, that God is negating bread and its importance. Moses knew that as a human being, we do live on bread. This verse is not so much a contrast as it is a climax. Not bread only, but the mouth of God. The point was that God had provided the Israelites food in order to teach them something far more important than the mere fact that God was providing for their physical hunger. This was important to be sure, but this verse points much higher, that their basic source of life was God and the words of God to his people. Man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, all in life on earth needs bread. And while bread will keep us physically alive, it is the heavenly bread, the words of the living God that uniquely gives human life meaning and purpose and value. Now, Jesus makes certain of this truth in John 6, 48. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen to, me, listen to uh, these words. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came out of heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God was more basic to Israelite existence than was food. Here then is the danger of prosperity. We can be so preoccupied with bread, with materialism, with physical things that we forget its purpose and its higher calling, that it is point us to God. Say it another way, dependence on bread should make us dependent on the Word of God. God's Word is what gives us life. God's Word is what gives us purpose and meaning in this world. But you see, when we turn a deaf ear to what has gone forth from the mouth of God, we inevitably sink down to a level of consuming only bread, of living only for bread, forfeiting the very ground of our goal and of our humanity. Has anything more illustrated this reality in our lifetime than during the COVID pandemic? What is it that we saw in our society as COVID hit? They try to live by bread alone, right? Acquiring bread at the grocery stores, our physical health became more important than the mo our most basic necessity 
to live on everything on the mouth of God. And the devastating result is that there, have been, there has been a loss to the meaning and purpose and dignity of human existence. This is precisely our Western culture. We have forgotten that we are made by God both body and soul. And while the body may be fed, the soul has been famished. This then is the danger of prosperity, to live and rely on bread alone and reap the loss of life and lose the significance and purpose of living in the first place. Yet another danger of prosperity is the terrifying posture of ingratitude. Ingratitude. Now, first, what I want you to see is the right response Israel is to have when God brings them into the promised land. If you look at verses 7 to 9, they read, as one commentator noted, as an Edenic description of the land. It sounds a lot like Hawaii, right? It's beautiful. That's a good land. Now, although Moses had never been there, this is what the land means to Moses. It's home. It's Eden. It's a beautiful description of the land. But the main point of the description of the land is where it says in verse 9 that you will not lack anything. The same verb is expressed in King David's familiar confidence that with Yahweh as his shepherd, he would lack nothing. Moses then says that the right response in verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, is to bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you, right? Gratitude to the giver is the only fitting response to so good a land promised in verses 7 and 9. This is the test of prosperity. When you have eaten and are satisfied, the only appropriate response is to thank and praise God. Now, we are to think this way whenever we have received any material blessings, right? All this and heaven too. You know, Deuteronomy 8, 10 has, a, has had a profound influence on Judaism and on some Christian households where the custom has been not only to pray a prayer of thanksgiving before the meal, but after the meal is eaten and when one is full. Now, what a great practice that would be for our families, right? If we prayed a prayer of blessing to God not only before the meal, but after the meal is over with and we're full. Unfortunately, a more common response than gratitude is the ingratitude that the rest of the chapter reveals. This chapter reveals this downward spiral where forgetting God leads to ingratitude, which leads to self-sufficiency, which leads to idolatry, and then which leads to perishing. As verses 19 to 20 give a sober warning it serves as a reminder that nothing provokes the ire of God like the ingratitude of His grace. Now, is there not this danger of prosperity in us? If a man has been richly blessed by God, and yet he, he is meager in his thankfulness, does that not mean that he is full in every way except for his empty heart? While your houses may be full and your bank accounts may be brimming, what has become of your heart in the meantime? Prosperity, it ought to lead us to enjoy God most. It should lead us to the source of fullness, which is God. Yet so often the danger of prosperity is an ungrateful heart. But fourthly, there is a danger of prosperity that is very closely connected with ingratitude. And that is that a danger of prosperity, it can lead to smugness, and self-sufficiency. 
Verse 14 is very clear about how prosperity can cause your heart to be proud. And later in verse 17, Moses clarifies what he means by a proud heart. And he says, you may say in your heart that it is my power and the strength of my hand that made me this wealth. The danger is that one can take credit for all their successes and to think that their wealth is due to their own efforts. A heart that is thankful to God is a heart of humility. An ungrateful heart is a proud and arrogant heart. Now, this difference is seen when you compare and contrast verses 7 to 10 to verses 12 to 14. But I want to show you a more subtle difference from these two passages, and I don't want you to miss it. If you look at verses 7 to 9, in the way that Moses describes the land, the emphasis is on the land and its natural resources that provide the people with enough to live, food without scarcity. The right response to God's daily bread is then to praise God. But if you look at verses 12 and 13, the emphasis is on Israel's own productive use of the resources given, resulting in abundance in everything, right? Abundance in possessions, abundance in gold and silver. There you see the word multiply repeated three times in verse 13. You say, what's the point? Well, whereas in verses 7, 10, sufficiency generates praise. But in verses 12 to 14, surplus and abundance generates pride. Spurgeon said it this way, when they were in the wilderness, in the land of drought, their God was everything, but now they were filled and they were swollen with self-importance. Why is that? Well, because successful and wealthy people can be convinced to think that it was my abilities, it was my intellect, my instincts, my diligence, my shrewdness, my professional skills that resulted in this great kingdom that I have built. Verse 18 is quick to tell us that if you think that if it's by your own power and strength that produces this wealth, think of where it came from. The fact is that it is the Lord your God. He is the one who gave you the power to make wealth. He is the one who has given you the abilities. You know, so often prosperity is linked with success. And when you are a successful person, there is this danger that the job that you have, the wealth you have accumulated, is not from the gracious gift that God has given you, but human achievement alone. You are tempted to say, well, I'm a self-made person. Instead of everything that I am and have, I owe to the Lord and to His grace. You know, friends, this can happen not only in economic ventures, but also in the arena of our spiritual lives. When we look over our accomplishments, that we have read the Bible faithfully every year for the last 20 to 30 years, we have never missed a day, we have prayed faithfully to God. We're able to read great Christian books on great theology. Maybe we've learned some Greek and Hebrew. When we're so busy, when we're ministering to people, and you know, maybe, maybe we're a family where our kids are well-mannered, and they're well-behaved, and they know all the answers to the Bible, and we do family worship, and we catechize our children. Oh, we are tempted to say to ourselves, if not publicly, my power and the strength of my hands made me this spiritual person. When we live in surplus, when material and spiritual things are multiplying, God is testing us in multiple ways. When you have graduated from a top-flight university, 
when you have a prestigious job, when you are promoted to a senior position, when you gained a windfall of fortune on the stock market, God is testing us. And this is also true, friends, in the more mundane accomplishments in life. When we master a new computer program or strike a hole in one on the golf course or perhaps reach a certain elite status, I think the young kids are playing COD, Call of Duty or something like that, or some kind of mastering some kind of new surfing form or perfect the best chocolate chip cookie and, you know, master a gourmet meal. I'm kind of, I'm going for everyone here. God is testing us. Will you become proud and think that it was your power and your skills that accomplished the success that you've had? Or will you give God the praise for giving you the abilities and the skills for these accomplishments? You see, I I think that the more successful we are, the stiffer the test is, and the greater the reason to praise God, and at the same time, the greater danger of self-sufficiency. And here, lastly, the greatest danger of prosperity is the danger of forgetting God. This is at the heart of all of the dangers of prosperity. Verse 11 is the focus of this chapter. It's the pivot point. It's the axis of the structure of the whole chapter. It all depends on this warning. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Now, chapter, verse 11, is actually a a repeat of what Moses warned back in chapter 6. Would you turn back there with me? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and let's start reading from verse 10. It says there, Moses says, Then it shall come about, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. It's a context that Moses is building with great rhetorical skill. He describes the pleasantness of the land in four poetic couplets, right? Good and great cities which you did not build. Houses filled with all good things which you did not fill. Hewn cisterns which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. And the climax comes at the end of this poetic structure, and you eat and are satisfied, yet there is great danger. The meditation of the pleasantness of the land and the relaxing tone of the poetic lines is sharply interrupted by the opening words of verse 12, then watch yourself, lest you what? Forget the Lord. The temptation is this. Fullness can lead to forgetfulness. Now, you would think that this rich history of Israel would have made it impossible for them to forget what God had done for them in Egypt, bringing them to the promised land. But Moses knew what was in their nature, and he knew what was in ours. You know, isn't it ironic that we may hold on to a sin that someone committed against us very long ago? We just can't erase it from our memory. We can remember like it has been etched and carved into our memory, a minor offense that someone committed against us years ago. But it is as if we are stricken with amnesia of our own much greater sins that we have committed against God in just a few days' time. 
You must fight against this temptation to forget. Never trust yourselves to your natural power of recollection. You must by faith set out to remember God. This exhortation to remember is repeated over and over, so much so that we are led to believe that to remember has a great deal of living the Christian life. In fact, those who fail to remember God are called apostates. The word apostate means a letting go or forgetting. An apostate is someone who has forgotten what he was once committed to. How many people do you know who once talked so much about God in their humble days, but now there's not a word from God? Then they used to speak of God often, but now God is seldom mentioned. Have you not seen how people who are prosperous in this world forsake Christ all together? They drift away from God because of the accumulation of wealth. They used to prioritize the worship of God, but now they're trying to squeeze in time for worship. The greatest danger of prosperity is that you can forget the Lord your God. Now, this whole business of forgetting and remembering is so critical then to the Christian life. And just by way of illustration, let me just tell you about a man by the name of John Newton. He's an author of Amazing Grace. He was a Christian and a pastor. He, he wrote as clearly as possible to the crucial role of remembering the Christian life with unwillingness to forget what must be recalled. He realized how fickle and how unreliable our memories are. He was raised from a godly mother who prayed with him every day and who sought to instruct his mind with holy scripture. She taught him to sing Isaac Watts's divine songs for children. She had already dedicated him to ministry, uh, but she died when he was only seven. And all of those wise and wonderful training, he admits in his autobiography, he soon forgot. You read over and over again in John Newton's account that he forgot his mother's training. And when he was 12 years old, he was thrown over the horse, just missed being impaled on some sharpened stakes near death. And this near-death experience, too, which made such a deep impression on him, he said, I soon forgot. And some years later, when he was a sailor, he agreed to meet some friends to row about in some British warships anchored in the harbor. But he was unexpectedly delayed, and his friends left without him. The boat that they were rowing were capsized, and they were all drowned. And he missed being on that boat by five minutes, and he couldn't even swim. And Newton said, I went to the funeral of my friends and was exceedingly affected. But this also I soon forgot. Then he had a dream of falling into the heavy anger and wrath of God. And at the time, it made such a deep impression upon his soul, and it shook him to the core of his being. But this, too, he soon forgot. And if you know his story, you remember he eventually was involved in a slave trade. And then finally, a great storm at sea happened when the whole crew despaired of life. And it was there that the Lord arrested him and convicted him of his sin and drew him and led him to call for God in mercy in Christ Jesus. And that day, he would later write, is a day much to be remembered by me. And I have never suffered it to pass unnoticed. For on that day in 1748, the Lord came from on high and delivered me from deep waters. And some years later now, as a Christian minister settled in Oni, 
as he was writing the great hymns that we love to sing, on top of the mantle of his fireplace of his study was plastered on the wall in very large letters the following words from Deuteronomy 15, 15. Remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. And when Newton was an older man, he once said to a Christian friend who encountered him, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. You see, John Newton, who had forgotten so much to so great harm to himself, but then he wrote above his study to remember because he saw the Christian life from beginning to end to remember. You want to know the secret of Christian living? Moses and John Newton will tell you, remember. You shall remember the Lord your God. Now, you know, there are many ways to awaken your memory to the Lord and his words. Newton had written on a mantle. Many of you might have verses on your refrigerators or your computer screen. Uh, some of you might memorize your words. You might keep it in your heart that you might not sin against you. But, but I want to call your attention to another way. By the principal means by God to keep your memory fresh. And that is the weekly worship of this church on the Lord's Day. That is the purpose of meeting together for weekly worship. The primary reason to be in church is to worship the living God. Right when we walk through those doors, we are stepping across a threshold and we are entering into God's presence. Now, we know that God is not restricted to a building, but we are aware that this is a sacred hour that God has set apart and declared to be a holy time of visitation between himself and his people. And so we leave worldly cares and concerns for a while so that we may focus on God and remember him. And so we set God before us in praise and singing. We rehearse God's glory and his wonderful redemption. We confess our sins and we ask God for mercy. We hear the gospel that Christ Jesus came to save sinners like the like of us. We hear the word proclaim. We sing in response and thanksgiving to God. We consecrate ourselves anew. So every time, every worship that we have, it is an opportunity to recommit ourselves to him. Every worship is an opportunity to be reminded of the truths that we desperately need to hear. Every worship is an opportunity to be assured of our salvation, that we belong to Him and live for Him alone. Every worship is an opportunity to have a lively impression that God in Christ has become our God so that with David we can and must say before the Lord, Oh God, you are my God. It is here at the weekly corporate worship that we are most reminded that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we come to hear a word from the living God as the preaching of God's word is unfolded to you. That is what Moses is speaking right here. He doesn't actually think that Israel will forget the exodus and the wilderness in the sense that they no longer believe that it happened. They're always remembering in that way. But what Moses means is that they must remember that history in a living way. The force of that history's impression upon the heart and the soul so that generations afterwards it would awaken them to trust and to love God. He wants that history to live again in their hearts. And so it is with us 
With our history of what God has done for us in Christ on the cross and resurrection, we must rehearse that history in our hearts so that it must come alive in a living way. You know, you can uh, listen to a great sermon. You can be part of a great worship and learn some things from it and even enjoy it. And then you can leave the church without it ever happening. Moses wants this truth to live on your soul. He wants us to strengthen you and cause you to leave this worship with better thoughts, with deeper thoughts of God. He wants you to live as if Christ died and rose again just yesterday. This is what we're after in our weekly worship. This is God's appointed means to awaken your memory. It is God's chosen means to strengthen you, our faith, as uh, weary pilgrims. It's how you and I can keep ourselves from forgetting God. Well, I'll close with the eloquent words from the Anglican J.C. Ryle. He writes, Never be absent from God's house on Sundays without good reason. Never to miss the Lord's Supper when administered in our own congregation. Never to let our place be empty when the means of grace are going on. This is one way to be growing and a prosperous Christian. Then he writes, the very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain a precious word in season for our souls. The very assembly for prayer and praise from which we stay away may be the very gathering that would have cheered, stabilized, and quickened our hearts. Well, let us be faithful to remember God and arrive at a place as John Newton was in his old age when his memory faded and be able to say, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner, that I have a great Savior. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that we are here in this hour, in this place of worship, where you are reminding us of eternal truths that benefit our soul. Lord, you are reminding us that you are our God and that there is only one Lord in whom we ought to live for and we are reminded that we are sinners saved by grace and whom Christ is our only Savior and Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times we have forgotten you and wandered about in our prosperity and accumulated things and forgot to give you praise and thank you. Forgive us especially for forgetting you, for putting other things in priority, for placing bread and materialism as our main pri priority. Father, I pray that you will remind us, Lord, of this essential truth that what is basic to our existence is you and your words. Help us to be a people that are about your words and your word alone to give us growth in this Christian life. Help us to remember you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.